The scripture reading this morning is taken from Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 11. And I shall read to you. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 11. Verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kilifs, in the 20th year, as I was in Shusa, the citadel, the Hanani, one of my brothers, came with seven men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the random there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8, remember the words that you have commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us seek the Lord in prayer for his blessing in the preached word. Our Father in heaven, thank you once again for giving us a time and a place where we can come be together as one people, Lord, to worship you, to sing your praise, seek you in prayer, with the reading of your word, and now also in the hearing of your word. Once again, we commit this, our learning to your hands, that you'll be pleased to grant the preacher the clarity of the conviction of heart and mind, or to preach your word without fear and favor of men, that you empower him with your Holy Spirit, that you use him as your vessel, Lord, even to share what he knows from your word, everyone and all. Pray for the church too as we gather around your word. Your, your Holy Spirit will also be our teacher. He'll open our hearts and our mind to receive your word in faith and in meekness that it may grow 
and bring forth much fruit for your glory. Help us, O Lord, for we are weak and you are strong. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A long time ago, long before some of you were even born, it was a common practice for people like me, older folks, to keep a diary. Have you heard of the word diary before? I hope you have. We will note down the events, our thoughts, and even pictures for the day in the diary. It is not just for memory's sake. It is also for learning and for future reference. Of course, today, blogs, vlogs, Facebook, Instagram, etc. have replaced and continue the role of a diary. Of course, the big difference being is diary are more personal items. And we're not supposed to read each other's diary. Whereas modern diaries, like your Facebook and Instagram, are public. Now everyone knows where you have your meals, where you go for your holidays, what are your happy and sad occasions. And for me, you know where I go for my birthday and what birds have I collected for the day. Now I'm starting a new sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, which is interestingly more or less like a diary. In the second half of 2016, I preached from Nehemiah chapter 8 to 13. And that was almost six years ago. So this series will be a prequel to the events leading to the revival at the Watergate. And unlike the Star Wars saga, you need not to wait for 20 years for a prequel. At least it takes six years, five years for the prequel to come. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Nehemiah is essentially a diary. And like any good diary, Nehemiah records the events. He notes down his thoughts. And he also paints a picture of his term of office as a, the governor of Judah. Now, the historical narrative of the book took place during the post exilic period from about 445 BC to 430 BC, or even later. Now, in the Hebrew scripture, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. In fact, Nehemiah is called second extra in the Hebrew scripture. So scholars believe that the final edition of the book of Nehemiah would likely come from Ezra the scribe. As you read through the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that there are some notes and then some post-Nehemiah events being recorded. So likely Ezra the scribe add on under the Holy Spirit supervision into the book itself. Now the book is addressed to the remnant 
of the children of the exile living in Judah. And now Judah is a backwater province, no longer an independent kingdom of the mighty Persian Empire. It's a very Ulu province, out of sight right now of mine, of the Persian Empire, actually. Now, the main cast of the book, of course, is Nehemiah, the cupbearer, and later the governor. So the supporting cast are Ezra, the scribe, the priests, the Levites, the random of the children of the exile, the rich folks, and the enemies of God's people. The main and the most obvious theme of the book is rebuilding the spiritual lives of the people of God through rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the worship of God, and the relationship of the people with God and man. If you write this in your book survey paper, you should get an A, I hope, I trust. That's where I get my A for this little description of the book to, of Nehemiah. Now, as a, cup, as a king's cupbearer, Nehemiah occupies an enviable and trusted position in the Persian Empire. You see, the king trusts him. And the food, the cuisine, that he savors every day before the king are, of course, exquisite and the best of the best. He's a foodie. He's your, if you write a blog on food, I don't, I think he will be the, you'll get one million followers without question. But of course, if someone wants to harm the king, he will die first because he savored the food or sample the food before it's being passed on to the king for his consumption. Now, while Nehemiah is serving an earthly king, he is mindful that he serves the king of kings and the lord of lords. You read the prayer, later you will notice that he keeps addressing himself as the servants of the lord of kings, the, of Jehovah God. I'm Mr. Gabli. He's mindful and he knows that he is the servant of the most high God. Now, Nehemiah is also one of my favorite Bible characters apart from King David. Why? You see, he is neither a priest nor a prophet. He is just a regular guy who holds a regular job like you and me. Yet he avails himself to the Lord's service and the Lord uses him to serve him in his kingdom and for his purpose. It is a great example and also a great encouragement to all of us who avails ourselves to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. From verse 1 to verse 3, we read of the unfolding of the crisis. Now in verse 3, we read that the random of the children of the captivity are in trouble and in shame. Now what kind of trouble and shame are there in? 
We can only guess from the narrative of the book. And also with reference to Ezra, the earlier book of the times of the people then. Maybe it is the constant opposition by the neighboring peoples since their return to the promised land some 80 years ago. We read about their opposition to the rebuilding of the house of God in Ezra. And I can imagine how the enemies of God's people set up to bully the random of the children of the exile in Judah from time to time. Not only they put on political pressure, but also economical pressure. Maybe they banned their exports of their essential goods and services to Judah. And not to mention also of the bad and false reports they make to the king of Persia and to the governor beyond the river Euphrates, the bigger section of the uh, east of the Persian Empire. Now maybe it is the oppression of the poor by the rich in chapter 5. You see the poor in the land are living from hand to mouth. They have to mortgage their land, their houses, and even their children to the rich for a loan to tide through the famine. And the rich charges their brethren, their own kinsmen, high interests. And this is against the law of God. They are not supposed to charge interest to their fellow kinsmen, fellow Jews. And it is an amount where they can never pay back. Something like our loan shark today. We can't even pay back the interest, not to mention the principal sum. As I mentioned, their children were, are enslaved as a result of their failure to repay even the interest. Or it could be the scourge of unequally yoked marriages in chapter 13. And chief among the offenders are the priests and the Levites who have, should have known the law of God better than the rest. Now all this distressing situation are reaching a national crisis level. Not DEFCON 1, but DEFCON 1 refers to military, but yes, emperor and also almost all ancient level in our, it's a, it is a national crisis. We also read of the sad and pitiable state of Jerusalem, of Zion, the city of God. That is where the house of God is located. But her walls and the gates are lying in ruins for almost 150 years. Don't think any of us can stand our kitchen lying in ruins for more than a month. So some of us have, but we are not staying there in the house anyway. So it doesn't bother us. If you are staying in your house, in your room, toilets are lying in ruins during the uh, upgrading process. You, you can't even stand for one day, not even to mention about one month. But here, the gates and the walls of Jerusalem and of Zion are lying in ruins for 150 years since the Babylonian conquered the land. 
and burn down Jerusalem. Now, the city wall is an important form of defense against aggression and attacks since ancient times. Why would the kings and the lords put up castles and fortresses in their domains? Was it for future generations of tourists to come by and take pictures and put on their Instagram? I've been here. No, no. They are for the defense of their domains. But Zion, and even today, we put up a metal gate and a strong wooden door and a minimal to keep away, to keep the house away from burglars and thieves. But Zion, the city of God, are left unprotected by the city walls against potential enemies. And there are many of them out there. Therefore, few people like to live in Jerusalem. Now, even the priests and the Levites who are supposed to serve in the house of God in Zion prefer to live in nearby villages, in their villas, in their suburbs, rather than living in Jerusalem. And who wants to live in a ruined city anyway? The random children of the exile are facing a national crisis in Nehemiah chapter 1. No doubt about it. Now what is the crisis we are facing in your life now? Interestingly for some, especially those who are optimistic about everything and anything, there is no such a thing as a crisis. In fact, each difficult turn and twist like our, like the COVID pandemic where there are so many lockdowns and so many restrictions. It is in fact an opportunity for them to break into new markets, to invent new ways and to make more money. So it's not a crisis to them. But for the pessimist, the ongoing war in Eastern Europe is really the precursor to World War III and the end of the world. So how do you evaluate or how do you assess the crisis of your life? How do you quantify or qualify it as a crisis in your life? We have seen external circumstances may be trying, but they do not necessarily make someone buckle under pressure. Therefore, gleaning from the scripture, especially from the Psalms, I would like to submit to you that a crisis in life, failing in exams, losing a job, or stricken with an incurable sickness or curse when the name and the honor of God is injured. When the cause of God is hurt. When your faith in God has been greatly shaken and you begin to lose hope in the Lord. It is nothing but a faith crisis. 
Now, how do you react to a crisis, to a faith crisis? We read in verse 4 that upon hearing the report from his brother, Nehemiah, sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, that is so different from the world who would become angry, anxious, fearful, disappointed, dejected, and depressed, and lose all hope in the face of a crisis. Of course, Nehemiah is not a stoic, nor apathetic to the troubles and shame of the people of God, his own kinsmen. The remarkable thing is he sat down or he sits down not to form a committee which is needful, necessary. And later he will have a team of people working for him to resolve the crisis. So he sat down. Scripture says he wept for me to sit down to reflect. And he wept or he weeps. He cried. He cries because it is painful. The pain is real. And tears is a gift from God. And you know what happens when you have dry eyes. Right? And many people have to pay expensive eye drops just to keep their eyes moisture. And like the Siamese, crying allows us to express our emotions by anger, by sorrow, by joy to God in a healthy way. And there are over 30 verses in the Bible which says that God sees or God notices our tears before Him. Now, why was Nehemiah grieved by the crisis in Judah and Jerusalem? which is 1,300 kilometers away from where he lives comfortably and where he has a great career. It is very far from Judah all the way to Susha. It's almost, yeah, Susha is a modern-day uh, Iraq, or Persia, sorry, Iran. And Judah, of course, is Israel. It's a very far away. And why was he bothered by the Troubles and a shame in Judah, even though they are his own kinsmen. Because like the psalmist in Psalm 137, Nehemiah's chief joy and delight is in Zion. And like Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 21, it is hurt when the people of God are hurt. Now you can take him out of Zion, but you can never take Zion out of Nehemiah. Now how is the cause of God that is the church bearing around you? Are you hurt when they are in trouble and in shame? The physical ruin of Zion or of the church is just a symptom of a greater spiritual problem beneath.
you care about it, you pray about it. And if you care, you can cast your care to God in prayer. For the Lord cares for us. Now, how does Nehemiah resolve the faith crisis of the hour? To him, the name and the honor of God is at stake. To him, the cause of God is hurt. When his people are living in shame and trouble, and when the walls of Jerusalem and Zion are broken down. So how does he resolve this crisis? As I mentioned to you, he sat down. He weeps. And he also goes into fasting and praying. Instead of gathering someone, his brothers, to form a committee and study how to go about resolving the issue, he fasts and prays first. Now, Donald Whitney noted in his book, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, that fasting is a Christian voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. And it is one of the best friends we can introduce to our prayer life. So fasting and prayer often goes together. Why? Because our hunger or the momentary hunger reminds us of our need to seek the Lord in prayer at a special time for a special purpose. I repeat again, our hunger. When you're fasting, you feel hungry, of course. I feel hungry even though I'm not fasting. It reminds us of our need to seek the Lord in prayer at a special time for a special purpose, a special spiritual purpose. And this is why, another reason why Nehemiah is one of my favorite Bible characters is he is a man of prayer. And he really prays his heart out to the Lord. His prayers are so God-centered or God-centric. It is what prayer should be. The book of Nehemiah records some of the great prayers of the Bible. And verses 5 to 11 is one of those. He began his prayer by praising the Lord God of heaven in verse 5. Now, so often when we go to prayer, we would bring our shopping list first and foremost. No, no, he spent his time to adore and worship the Lord before he goes into confession and supplication. It is so important, so essential in prayer. We don't rush into God's presence with our shopping list or our wish list. We begin with worship. And that is our ultimate priority in all that we do. Worship is our ultimate priority. As I mentioned in the, my opening devotion, one day we'll be all be gathered around the glassy sea to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's our only business in heaven, to worship, to adore. 
the king of kings and the lord of lords. We worship God because he is our creator and our savior. It's very clear. And now Nehemiah addressed Jehovah God with the title God of heaven. Now this title occurs 10 times in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Either in proclamation or in prayer. Even the Persian king uses this title when he addresses Jehovah God. Now what is the significance of this title? Now this special title, the God of heaven, seems generally to have been used by the Jews when they were talking to men of other religions whose gods are confined to their nation or land. So the God of the Moabites is good enough only for the land of Moab. Or the God of the Persian is only good enough or confined to the land of Persia. No, 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 not our God. For we worship a true living God. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he is the God of heaven. That is the God that we are worshiping. Not confined to one locality, nor to one nation, to one people, but it is God of heaven. He creates the heavens and the earth. Our Lord is a true living God. So let us confess and let us live out the sovereignty of God, the kingdom of God in our prayers, as well as in our daily vocation, as a student, as a homemaker, as an employee, as an employer, as a son, as a daughter, as a husband and a wife, as a children. In short, let us live in the presence of God, Haram Deo. Secondly, he confessed, and he also identified himself with the sins and the disobedience of God's people. That is remarkable. Not only he confessed his sin, he identified himself with the sin of the people. Read of that from verses 6 to 7. Now, what do we do when we see the church in trouble? We will normally start to identify the problem areas and blame others for it. Instead of identifying ourselves with the sin and failing of the church. Notice that Nehemiah confessed the sin of the people as his own using the pronoun we and I and my father's house. The reason Nehemiah sees sins for what it is and confesses it so personally is because he has a high view of God and his holiness. To Nehemiah, the Lord is a great and awesome God who is just and holy. What is your view of God? How do you confess your sins to the Lord? Do you make excuses for your sin and or point to mitigating circumstances? When we look, when we treat sin 
in our life lightly, we really make light of God, Christ's sacrifice for us. If God could close one eye to our sin, why would he have to send his son to suffer and to pay for the full penalty of our sin on the cross? Of course, thirdly, Nehemiah pleads on the Lord's promises and covenant mercies. Nehemiah pleads God's word and bring it back to God in verse 8. He, he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. And verse 9, but if you... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the outermost part of the of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah used God's word. Not only he knows God's word, he knows the God of the word, of course. And he pray back the will of God to God that he would fulfill his promise in his word. He pleads. And he might ask the Lord to remember his own that he has spoke through Moses. He did not have any ground to stand up, to stand in himself. He can only stand in God and in his word. In this Quite unusual for us to pray God's word back to the Lord. Years ago, I heard a minister who was attached to my former church for a while. I would say I really enjoy his prayer. He would pray from Genesis to Revelation on all the promises of God. Not that he demanded from the Lord, but he will pray and plead the Lord to fulfill his promise. Is something whereby we can exercise in our prayer life too. But of course, you must know the will of God well to use it as an argument, argument with God. And the Puritans use it often. If I read the Puritans, you will understand why I meant. They use God's word to bring it back to God, to plead and to argue. Of course, in, with fear and trembling. So the challenge for us is to know God's word, to know His promises, and to plead with God using his own word. Nehemiah pleads on God's covenant love and mercy in verse 5. And I say, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment. Nehemiah is aware and conscious of the disobedience and unfaithfulness of the people of God before and after the exile. So he pleads on the unwavering faithfulness of God to his covenant to a thousand generations. It's a comfort for us to know that we can, even though we are unfaithful, we are disobedient, God is faithful. And he will stand by his covenant which have made with Christ and his church. 
And Nehemiah also pleads with the Lord to hear his request. In verse 6, let your ear be attentive to, and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. And also in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Interestingly, he brackets his prayer with by asking the Lord to be attentive to his prayer. You will notice in the prayer itself. It's like two book ends. He, want, he really makes want to make sure that his prayer is being heard by the Lord. So he pleads to the Lord before and, and at the end of his prayer that the Lord will hear his prayer. It is not kiasu. It is not being presumptuous on the Lord's mercy and grace. And may we never, never be presumptuous on God's mercy and grace when we come before him. This is the scourge of the church today. When we come into God's presence, we take for granted that he will hear us. No, we dare not, and we never should take for granted the grace of God. And he might demonstrate to us. We come before the Lord humbly, pleading him to, be, to hear his prayer before and after the prayer. Because he's not being presumptuous, he will not take the grace of God for granted. He will not take the hearing of God for granted. As if he is obliged to hear our prayer. Using Nehemiah must plead with the Lord in prayer. He uses God's word. He uses God's covenant mercy. He even pleads with the Lord to hear his prayer. We are to do likewise but in the most amazing and wondrous way, in a way that will blow our minds and rapture our hearts, not rapture our hearts, rapture our hearts. We can plead to the Lord on the blood of Christ. On the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross, we can pray and we can plead with the Lord in Christ's blood and in His righteousness, which we can only see as type and shadows, as animals are being brought to the altar day by day. But we are living in the full light of Christ's revelation. We can come before God pleading in Christ, in His work and in His righteousness, in His blood. If it's not for Christ, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, there will be no hope, no grounds for our pleading. In Christ, there is full redemption for the people of God. It is in Christ and Christ alone that sinners can be accepted by God and receive help in time of need, in time of a crisis. Christ is the perfect pleading ground for all who will come to God in faith. Now what shall we say to these things or in conclusion? I just like to leave with you three thoughts 
first of all, each crisis in life is essentially a faith crisis. As I mentioned, be failing in your exams, being losing a job, or stricken by an incurable sickness. It is essentially a faith crisis. It is a test to show how much you trust in the Lord and what is your esteem of the Lord. Repeat again, it is a test to show how much you trust in the Lord and what is your esteem of the Lord. How do you value the Lord in your life? How do you value God in your life when the crisis comes? You curse God and leave. Or will you run to the Lord when crisis comes? Do you murmur? Or do you sit down and weep and pray and fast when a crisis comes? That is the test. Secondly, we can carry everything, including our crisis in life, to the Lord in prayer. It's wonderful. We can pray. Yes. Even when we are lying on the bed, we can pray. Even when we're walking in the woods, we can pray. And even when I'm doing my birding, I pray. Prayer is indeed a whisper away. You can pray in your heart. You can pray in your thoughts. You can pray verbally. You can pray vocally. You can pray in groups. You can pray individually. You can pray in the church. You can pray in the closet. You can pray when a crisis comes into your life. Pray. Plead with the Lord. And as the hymn goes, as the old familiar hymn goes, what needless pain you carry when you never go to God in prayer. You need not to suffer the pain if only you will go to God in prayer. If only you will seek the Lord. Those pain are needless. And we have suffered so much pain in our life because we never seek the Lord in prayer. We never bring it to the Lord in prayer. The God of heaven is not just confined to a providence Reformed Presbyterian Church. He is a God of all creation and all universe. The Almighty God, we can look to Him in prayer. And finally, Christ, who faced the greatest crisis in His life, yes, in the history of all mankind, He cried to the Lord at the Garden of Gethsemane and also on the cross. And on the cross, Christ cried out, My Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? He seemed hopeless in the hour of crisis. But though God seemed silent and the crisis seems long, it's not only the hour on the cross, but when Christ was lying buried on the ground, we don't know what's going through the mind of the apostles, the disciples. I think a minute is longer than a day. A minute is longer than a year to them, if I'm in their shoes. But the crisis seems long. And on Sunday, 
first day of the week, Christ raised, the Lord raised Christ from the dead to give him the victory over sin and death. That is how the, this is what the gospel is. And may we come to the Lord in faith and repentance, knowing that Christ has risen for all our sin, for the death. And those who come to him, or he will no wise cast out. Let us pray.